Good evening and welcome to this joint Latrobe Asia and Asia Society webinar, Is Asia Going to War? I am Matt Smith of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. I would also like to pay my respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal Australians who are watching this webinar. Latrobe Asia and Asia Society both exist to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. To that note, we are here to discuss, is Asia going to war? As Asia grapples with a global pandemic, the region has become less secure. China's ambitions in Taiwan, Hong Kong and South China seas are growing and there are lingering concerns that the United States, a long time stabilizing presence, may continue to remain insular and withdraw. Regional powers such as Japan, India are increasingly coordinated on military activities and European countries are sending warships to Asian waters. As military tensions in Asia rise, the head of the Australian Home Affairs Department recently warned that democratic countries can again hear the beating of drums of war. So is war likely? Where is it likely and who will it involve and what can be done to mitigate the situation? I'm delighted to be joined by our esteemed panel of experts to unpack these crucial issues. Firstly, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Ariana Schuyler Mastro, who is a Centre Fellow at the Freeman Spogley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and a non-resident Senior Fellow at American Enterprise Institute. Welcome, Ariana. Thank you for having me. Uh, Ariana recently had an article in Foreign Affairs on Taiwan, uh, both in the current issue and in the next issue. So look out for that. It's been prompting a lot of debate, uh, including uh, on our own podcast, Asia Rising, and now in this event. So thank you for returning, Ariana. Great to see you. Next, we are joined by Guy Birkenstein, who is uh, the Northern Australia Fellow at Asia Society and has more than 20 years experience working in Asia defence and security issues in government and in the private sector. And it's been wonderful to partner with Asia Society on this event. So welcome, Guy. Hello up there. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Last but not least, the founding executive director of Latrobe Asia with us tonight, our dear leader, Professor Nick Bisley. Nick is the Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences, a chair of IR at La Trobe University, and was once listed in Men's Health magazine as one of Australia's top 40 academics under 40 to watch. Thank you for joining us, Nick. Top 40 people to watch, not just academics. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I stand corrected. One of my career highlights, <laughs> quite unquote. Thanks, Matt. Really, real pleasure to be here. Uh, so uh, time for the Q&A uh, part of the session. So we'll uh, start with you, Ariana, if we could. And we'll start with a Taiwan uh, because of uh, your articles and the discussion that it's prompted. So you've been writing on that extensively at the moment. Uh, so you recently argued on, on the Asia Rising podcast uh, and elsewhere that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan is entirely plausible. And you've outlined how this might happen. And you spoke about joint missile campaigns, a, a blockade, counter-intervention campaigns and amphibious landings. So what would China's invasion of Taiwan likely to mean for great power conflict in Asia? And how might the US respond to such an action? So I'm just trying to get a flashpoint kind of overview from you to start us off with. Yeah, well, sure. So there's a lot of discussion on what 
the the Chinese use of force is most likely to look like. And of course, a lot of people have argued that it's, you know, the Chinese prefer gray zone coercion, political warfare, all that type of stuff. And, and I completely agree. Except with Taiwan, you're not going to get full political control of Taiwan through those methods. I One of the things that I believe that um, perhaps put me in a different camp than some of my critics is I don't think the people of Taiwan are going to voluntarily unify with the mainland without Chinese boots on the ground on the island. So because of that, my article in Foreign Affairs and then the debate in the next issue of Foreign Affairs really focuses on the full-scale amphibious landing and whether or not China can do it. Because I think at some point, China and Xi Jinping has been clear, he wants this issue resolved. The only way to resolve it is to get Chinese boots on the ground in Taiwan. So if, if China did this full-scale amphibious landing, I am very confident, and it, it's strange to me because I hear a lot of people in the region in Australia questioning what the United States would do. The United States 100% is going to fight this war. Actually, you know, a lot of my critics are concerned that the discussion of Chinese aggressiveness is playing too much into what they see as an increased belligerence in the United States, in that there seems to be this, uh, you know, push for more provocative policies vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan that could lead us to the brink of war. Now, I, I haven't, I'm not, I don't support changes in the US policy towards Taiwan. I support a change in military posture, not in policy. But in my view, the United States is absolutely gonna respond. The big issue is that the balance of power has shifted. One of the main reasons China might actually go for this landing is because they think that they could win. And not just that they could win if the United States does not intervene, that is obviously a guarantee, but that they could win even if the United States intervenes. And I don't mean to suggest, you know, and I'm happy to take in Q&A, we can go into more detailed discussions of technologies and war plans and things of that sort. Um, but I don't mean to suggest that the Chinese military is more powerful than the U.S. military. The U.S. military is still far superior, except for this, you know, 80 mile situation right across the Taiwan Strait. It's possible that China can move before the United States even has the time to respond accurately. So a lot of people in the region worry about you know, what does it mean for U.S. commitment, the role of the United States in Asia, if the United States doesn't defend Taiwan? My big question is, what does it mean for the region if the United States tries and fails? I think that's even worse. Mm -hmm. uh, Nick or Guy, did you, did you want to weigh in? Weigh in? Actually, can we just uh, follow this up with a bit of show and hands? Who, who, who show of hands, that goes really well across the podcast. Who thinks Australia, uh, who thinks Asia is going to go to war, that it's on a, a war kind of heading just want to gauge from the three of you i mean oriana I, I think that you've showed your hand there Look, I, think I think six years i think the timeline matters i don't think it's this year mm. but i think within definitely within the next six to seven years yeah i mean i i'd just say i, I think the, the sort of five to ten year time horizon looks to me to be the one the most worrying um and if you sort of go back five years and think you know, I remember writing uh, in sort of, it was 2014, writing in sort of 2014 is not 1914. You know, the, 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 we're not on the precipice of great power conflict in the way that we were in 1914. We're still not in 1914 moment, but we're a lot closer to that than we were for a whole range of reasons um, to do. I mean, one of the reasons that is squarely, as Oriana said it, which is Xi Jinping has made very public and very clear a, set, a signal that says, you know, Taiwan is not a problem that will be, passed down to the next generation. Now, of course, he doesn't have term limits. He'll be there for a long while. We don't know what the exact time frame is, but 
there does seem to be, and 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 I would heartily endorse Ariana's piece, or Ariana's piece in uh, foreign, the current foreign affairs, which outlines the sort of particularly looks at the incentives that Xi Jinping and the PRC have for moving sooner rather than later, and the sort of <laughs> worryingly compelling argument. Um, so I think, but I think the balance of probabilities right now is, you know, no, we're not, the, the drumbeats are not about to happen instantly. There's a whole range of scenarios we can get into later on um, as to how it might happen by accident and how things could occur in which you get a set of circumstances in which a kind of unwitting conflict uh, escalates. But the kind of, um, you know, classical aggressive conflict in which one side, you know, meaningfully plans for and then significantly changes the geography through force, or the cartography rather through force, a la invasion of, of Taiwan or a North Korea invading South Korea or something along those lines, that's kind of post the next five years. But as I said, I think we're a lot closer to that than we were five or six years ago. Mm. Mm. Guy, any thoughts? Yeah, no, look, I, I would completely agree with both of those assessments. I think it's, you know, it's obviously interesting what we've been seeing um, and what seems to have almost been accelerated during the COVID period. And um, I'm sure we'll get to it, but Japan's most recent defence update was was very fascinating, particularly the references they specifically made to Taiwan. Um, mm. as, a, as a Japan follower for well, kind of two decades, I found that striking. And, and as, as just even simple things like the cover picture, which I know there's been a lot of commentary about that in itself has quite, a, quite an interesting meaning. Um, I mean, we've seen the defence strategic update issued by the Australian government last year, talking about that the you know the ten year warning period has now almost disappeared. So that's that in itself is quite significant. What my so I don't I completely concur with with everything that Oriana and Nick have said. I think for me though, I, I agree that in the you know I don't think we're likely to see a a full scale kind of traditional kind of invasion or war within the next kind of five to 10 years. But I think one of the really interesting aspects to explore is the potential for a, you know, a strategic miscalculation. And that could be around, you know, Chinese incursion into Japanese airspace. It could be around Taiwan. It could be around a whole range of things. So mm. particularly when we see, you know, large scale um, deployments going through the region, as we're seeing now with the HMS or about to see with the HMS Queen Elizabeth, you know, the, it, it just really, in this current climate, I think it really escalates the op, the potential for that for that miscalculation. So I think that that could be quite interesting to kind of explore too if we have time. Okay. Um, Oriana, I'll circle back to you for right now uh, because I want to know if this, uh, from your perspective, is contained to Taiwan or if there's going to be other provocations or if it's going to spill out into other arenas because you, you wrote in the Lowy Interpreter really recently about the South China Sea and you argued that China is unlikely to make the compromises necessary on its expansive territorial claims. Uh, so there's other leaders who are trying to accommodate China and the South China Sea really emblemizes all of that. So what do you think the conflict uh, makeup is like over there or do you think that it'll, it'll just be an expansion extension of anything that happens in Taiwan? 
So I'm not that, I'm not as worried about the South China Sea right now. So I I did have a piece about a year ago in which um, there's these preventative memos that the Council on Foreign Relations have to lay out the pathways to conflict. And I did one on the South China Sea. And one of the main differences between Taiwan and the South China Sea is, you know, the South China Sea is the size of like half the continental United States. China is able militarily maybe to prevail in a Taiwan conflict because they have a lot of home court advantages. They're relying on a lot of capabilities that are land based at home. Once we talk about projecting power over those vast distances, they have a a lot more difficulty. And so they don't have the same confidence, and rightfully so. Um, They would lose in a conflict with the United States in the South China Sea. And so I think that, coupled with the fact that the sort of economic coercion, diplomatic coercion, uh, you know, lawfare aspects of their South China Sea policy have been working, Right. They have been able to slowly gain more and more control over the South China Sea through these more gray zone activities leads me to believe that, you know, they are less likely to do some sort of overt use of force. Now, the ironic situation is that if the United States becomes an allies and partners more effectively push against these indirect forms of control, and as the Chinese military gets stronger and stronger, right, just I think last week we saw pictures of the new Type 003, the new aircraft carrier, those types of things will be relevant for South China Sea contingencies, then you might see them shifting to a strategy that relies more on traditional military methods. But, but for now, I think the South China Sea, you know, is, is problematic because China is, has been very effective at gaining more control at a relatively low cost. But I'm less concerned about an overt use of force. Mm-hmm. Nick, are you worried about there being spillover into other regions uh, such as the South China Sea or even, um, you know, across the border, they've got India who would uh, have something to say about China's activities as well, those sort of areas? Uh, I think on the South China Sea specifically, I think um, Oriana is exactly right that it's not hasn't got anywhere near the sort of risk profile that Taiwan does. Um, and there's also things like you know, this there's, there's distance issue, but also the distance from US assets mean that the escalation cycle would be much slower. You'd be able to manage it, even if you had the sort of accidents of the kind of things that, that Guy was alluding to. The ability to you know, keep a lid on things, to, to, take, the, to, to take the heat out of it is, is greater simply because it takes more time to get things up. And you've got no genuine vital interests at play there. You know, you don't have, you know, to go back to Orida's initial point, America is absolutely going to back Taiwan for a whole range of reasons, least of which is if America is going to back Taiwan, which of its allies and partners around the world is it going to back? You know, there's, there'd be serious credibility issues um, to, to look at. Whereas the South China Sea, there's, a, there's so much ambiguity and complexity about who, who owns what and what whose claims are legitimate and that sort of thing that, that you know, those things that make conflicts of interest um, super salient in these sort of heated moments, it, it's just not there. So I think it's more controllable. It's not a zero risk, you've got to, you've got to reckon, but it hasn't got the heat that, that Taiwan does. But I think if you look elsewhere in the region and think, well, first, what about what, what's China likely to do? But then think more broadly about what, where are the risks of great power conflict? Um, I think this, the South China Sea is less of a concern the, the the accident scenario the guy hinted at, I think, is, is, some, is one that's probably after Taiwan at the moment potentially the riskiest, which is an, an accident in the East China Sea, that, that friction that the Chinese and the Japanese in particular have over the, the islands to the north of Taiwan, both of them claim that, that Japan currently has 
um, administers the sink, what the Japanese call the Senkaku, the, the Chinese call it Yayu, um, where there's just so much friction between those two militaries that something could happen. You know, it's, it, Japan claims it's a sovereign it's part of its um, sovereign territory. The United States has publicly sent the Obama administration said explicitly that it's covered by the mutual security treaty. Um, so that that has a level of kind of political heat. It's got that ge geographic proximity that means that both sides can get there quickly and move things um, up the escalation cycle very, very swiftly. Um, and then there's also the India-China border. Although again, I think that's less likely to, to explode into an accidental conflict just because of the constraints around the physical geography. You know, the, the thing, the where their where their interests clash just makes mobilizing significant amounts of force very difficult. But nonetheless, it's you know the kind of questions of honor and dignity and nationalism that, that are once again on the, at, at the you know, once again rather unfortunately um, really salient political issues. I think make that <clears throat> very risky. And then you, you couldn't rule out Korea, but I think at the moment the Korea Peninsula looks to be in a more, one of its slightly more stable phases, um, and the incentives for the North to to get belligerent with the South are not particularly strong. But you know, when you've got the world's most militarized border, um, you've got great powers on all corners. Things could get, you know, it, it wouldn't take too much for for the North and North South Korea um, contingency to get very very complex very very quickly. So there's a lot of risk around there. Um, mm. China's not the only precipitant. Um, and as uh, we were, you know, as you were alluding to earlier, the, I think it was Guy who was saying it, you know, we've just got so much more military activity going on in the region, both from, um, you know, resident powers, so to speak, but, you know, the Europeans are showing up, the, the Germans, I think, have just announced they're sending a, a destroyer. The whole thing has a, just that extra level of risk that you didn't have in just these interactions. Uh, before we continue, uh, everyone, if you could please put your questions in the Q&A because some of them have been popping up, putting them in the chat. Uh, Margaret, hello. Eduardo, hello. And Brian, uh, please use the Q&A and not the chat because uh, <laughs> I think that they're getting a bit distracting there as well. Um, uh, Guy, did you want to weigh in there at all? I, I'm slightly concerned that we're getting a lot of fronts in a potential war in Asia. And uh, if anything, that might deter China more than anything. So what are your thoughts on, on those issues? Yeah, look, I think, I think that's, that's, that's a valid point. And I think it's interesting, um, I was, you know, what, as we've seen with the show of support for the, for the UK um, kind of coalition carrier task group that's moving through, as I mentioned previously, or, or on its way into the region, um, interestingly, you know, there's been 40-odd kind of nations that have supported that through both either contributions, exercises on the way, port visits, et cetera. So, um, you know, for me, that, that's quite an example of, you know, the, 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 the regional value of, of such, a, such a deployment through the region. And it kind of begs the question, well, you know, does Beijing have those kind of friends and allies across and that, that winning of the hearts and minds, which is very important. The other thing I'm, and I guess we, we watch particularly from the north of Australia is what the US is planning to do or what they will do through their global posture review and also the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. So I think as, as the US, if, if they kind of go the way that, and Oriana will know this better than me, but if they go the way that we, we think they're going to go, and a lot of the commentary has been about in kind of redisposition of forces and moving to smaller, agile, more dispersed forces around the region, I think that just to Nick's point, that, that kind of adds to that busyness in the region that we haven't had for, for quite a while. So 
it, it will be quite interesting to to kind of see how that plays out. I mean, I completely agree. I think the South China Sea itself is not particularly going to be a point of flash um, or a flashpoint in the immediate future. But I guess, you know, there's been a long, long, long pent up kind of, you know, strategic competition in the region now for quite a while. We're suddenly seeing an increase of military activity in the region. Um, and, you know, I think that can only lead to something at some point we'll give somewhere, whether mm. that's on, you know, or, or on purpose or by accident. So can we um, delve into that a bit more about the uh, the US leadership in the region? So, um, uh, Nick, as, as I understand it, uh, one of your arguments is that old regional order underpinned by consensus around US leadership is now gone. So what would a new order look like and what do you see the roles of great powers, US and China, in provoking or de-escalating conflict in, in those ways? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the, my basic point um, is that, you know, in the past, there was a broad consensus about American military primacy in the region as, as generally a good thing. It kept it, you know, solved a whole bunch of problems to do with everything from how much you spend in your defence to making sure the Japanese don't, you know, from, from a non-Japanese point of view, don't back their bad old habits of, of militarism and the like. And... And even Beijing was content to live with it, not happy with it, but was content to live with it. And there was a sort of a great power concord, so to speak, um, that really laid the foundations for that long period of, of prosperity from the late 1970s through roughly till about you know five or six years ago. Um, and it's pretty clear now that Beijing is is not prepared to live with um, that old dispensation. Uh, and the question at this stage is: it's yes. China doesn't want what used to be the sort of prevailing regional order, but it's not clear, A, what it wants in its stead, and it's certainly right now clear that it's not prepared to fight to push America out or to fight to create some new set of arrangements. And so where we're at right now is a kind of weird situation where um, you've got an emerging, um, you know, rising power that's trying to change things to, to suit its perception of where its interest lies and how the region should be organised and is doing a whole range of relatively low-key, so to speak, things. I mean, low-key in the sense of not provoking war, but still fairly major, things like the Belt and Road Initiative, um, developing a whole range of positive relationships with its neighbours, um, trying to establish you know, infrastructure standards and a whole range of things that are trying to just gently nudge things in a way that it would prefer, and it's poking and pressing and testing the United States and its allies here and there, like in the South China Sea and elsewhere. It's setting up new institutions, you know, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the like. Um, but it's not prepared at the moment to take the US on in a square fight for hegemony in, in um, Asia, and I don't think it's likely to anytime soon. It's, there, there's specific issues, and Taiwan is the centerpiece, which are particular. They're not to do with, they're not a contest of a bad order. They're a, almost like a domestic political imperative for, for Beijing. But it's almost like we've got two things going on where the US and its allies are trying to sustain a status quo that isn't really a status quo, at least as it was before, because the most important country in the region, China, doesn't want to be part of it. And at the moment, you've got this curious situation where each side uh, is almost talking past the other. Each side can't see the world from the other's point of view in a, in a genuine way. Um, and or certainly not in a sufficient way to build a consensus about how they can get along. Um, and historically, you know, the way major powers, you know, the, the role major players, great powers played in managing these sort of circumstances, the kinds of things we're talking about, how to, how to avoid great power war, 
was they established you know, very careful ways of managing their interests with one another, and particularly in relation to where those interests clashed and figured out often quite complex diplomatic mechanisms to manage crises, to ensure things didn't escalate, um, to establish spheres of influence and the like, to, to ensure that the big players, little squabbles, don't tip the whole system sideways. At the moment, we don't really have that. Um, and there's a range of reasons why that's the case, one of which is, um, I think, from a, from the sort of Western allies' point of view, is a belief that China can be either corralled or accommodated to, not accommodated in, the, in a kind of broad sense, but in a sense that says a, a, a China should be able to achieve its interests and its ambitions within the context of the old order, which is often travels under the label of the, the rules-based order, but just... I think it's simpler to call it just how things used to be. Um, and Beijing does not, <laughs> does not agree with that point of view. Um, and so we're in this funny situation where we don't have new rules. We don't have a, a, way, a kind of way of managing little crises or the big issues. Um, and each side is not quite competing to look down the nose of the other. So my dog <laughs> managing the corner. Um, but you have a situation where... Um, you know, not only do we not have these rules, we look like we're a long, not a long way, but certainly some way off having um, mechanisms for managing those crises. And that, that's why when you talk about contingencies like Taiwan or the East China Sea, they feel particularly vulnerable right now because we don't have the ways of controlling them that we had. Certainly, I mean, there was always analogues during the Cold War when there was all these elaborate mechanisms to ensure that around the world where Soviet and American interests clashed, it didn't unleash you know, World War Three or nuclear apocalypse. We have very little of that now. And um, I think that's, yeah, that's. I just want, so they write a lot about war with China. So, you know, people kind of think like, I, but I'm not really a China hawk because I just sort of want to clarify, like I agree with everything Nick said, but like, you know, just to see this from China's perspective. When we say and in the United States forever, there was, that's I think how a lot of American see it. So there was this debate in China forever of, okay, if we follow, you know, we follow the rules, but if we get more powerful than the United States, are they really going to let that happen? And I think what we learned is that, you know, China, without overtly using military force, because that used to be the standard definition of revisionism, right? They relied mainly on political and economic tools and were able to build a lot of power. And, and challenge U.S. power on the global stage. And so then a lot of people, I think, in the U.S., again, probably subconsciously, were like, okay, I mean, when we said, as long as you kind of follow the rules, what we meant was, as long as you're okay with being number two. And I think it makes perfect sense that China is not okay with being number two. And I think it also makes perfect sense that a lot of these rules and norms we talk about are somewhat subjective, right? Like, you know, why is it okay to infiltrate spies through the state, through your, through your embassy abroad, but it's not okay to infiltrate them as journalists or students? Because the Western order says that we can do it one way and we can't do it the other way. So, you know, I always see this, you know, I, I, I think that the United States and China, we have a lot of conflicting interests, and that's why there's a high likelihood of conflict in the region. But I, I differ maybe from some of the China hawks and the more conservative side of, you know, in the United States, in that I don't think that this is a product of the Chinese system. I don't sort of fault China for what their 
interests are, I think it's perfectly natural that China wants to have, as one very authoritative Chinese military publication calls it, one strategic space. They want to be able to do whatever they decide they want to do. They want the United States to stop trying to shape their behavior. Now, of course, as an, uh, an, as an American, American strategist and someone who benefits from, from, from US power in the international system, you know, it's my job to advise to prevent that. But I don't think there's anything sort of inherently, you know, you know, evil or bad about that kind of position. I understand where the Chinese are coming from, um, and I still kind of, I still kind of want to stop them in that. But in terms of the building of Chinese influence, I think what's really interesting and what I'm writing a whole book about right now is how they are doing it in a fundamentally different way than the United States across the board. Yeah, Perhaps just a little footnote so, yeah. to Ariana's point, which is I think um, not enough Americans, and not just Americans, but in Canberra and in Tokyo and elsewhere, get that other side of the coin, which is to say they, they see the international order as neutral, as about rules, and, and why can't they, Beijing, get it that this is in everyone's interest to follow this sort of liberal thing that we've set up and not see it as something that, yes, has rules and norms and principles, but fundamentally rests on power. You know, the question of who's got what power and the, the order reflects the values and interests of those who have the power. Um, and I think we, and if you compare it to the Cold War, they kind of got that. You know, it was an ideological competition, but it rested on a geopolitical balance of power. Um, and I think that gap um, between decision makers in, in Western capitals and the Chinese point of view is, is, a, is a big one in certain points. And I think it, it's, it's very risky as a consequence. Um. The question that I've got here before we go to uh, the audience maybe is um, that, uh, Guy, I'll throw this to you. Uh, can middle and smaller states play a role in ensuring stability, reducing conflict, or is it really just determined by great powers? Uh, so what I'm really asking for here is um, you're the one geographically closest to uh, China and those sort of regions. What can Australia be doing uh, in this sort of situation? And what's yeah, the state yeah, for thanks. us, I guess, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And, and look, that I think that's really great because I wanted to kind of build on what both Oriana and Nick were just talking about. But I'll, so I, when I, I think from, from the point of view is, you know, if we look realistically at the Australian, uh, you know, Defence Force and our ability to kind of project power or defend Australia independently, like, you know, we, we shouldn't be kidding ourselves. We've got a very small military and a very capable military, but, you know, we the alliances and partnerships will always fundamentally underpin our, our defence and security, I think. So I think what, what Australia can be doing is really what we do and what we do well and what we've done for the last 70 years, particularly with the Americans, is is really work to support those alliances and to support those kind of strategic partnerships in the region. Um, from a Northern Australian um, point of view, what we can also offer, and this is, sorry, Australia-wide, but particularly in North, north of Australia, is we can offer our larger, stronger allies, particularly, again, going back to the US, but also, you know, the Japanese, the South Koreans, Singaporeans and others, um, very world-class, you know, high-quality training and exercising locations. So that, that, that's incredibly important for building interoperability between our, uh, between our respective militaries, between, you know, building that common understanding, um, learning from each other and, and you know, really showing showing the region that 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 kind of support and that force so you know we've we've just seen for example in queensland and parts of the northern territory the 
the exercise Talon and Sabre, which saw, you know, I think it was 17,000 personnel and seven nations. And, you know, that, that, that in itself is incredibly significant. And we've seen the Minister for Defence talk about in, inviting India to join that exercise in two years' time. So I think th those kind of things is, are what Australia as a middle power um, can do. Um, there's also the long-standing, uh, I guess, regional outreach through defence cooperation programs and other um, kind of capacity building and, and professionalisation programs that are that are equally important and that where we can play a really a quite a niche role um, in in helping to both win that influence and and kind of strengthen those partnerships in the region. But I, I think the point that what I'd like what my my, my view is and you know, having having worked in the region for a long time and having worked in Canberra in the policy space um, in in the uh, in the Asia Pacific um, kind of domain is, I think what Nick and Oriana were both talking about is is really a better understanding and a deeper understanding of those cultural issues and and the other side of the coin. I mean, I think it's no, I don't think anybody would argue that Asia literacy in general across Australia, both private sector, government, pol political, um, has declined significantly over the last kind of two or three decades. And really without having that, you know, fundamental kind of understanding of, as Oriana was talking about, well, how does China see things? But not only how does China see things, well, how does Indonesia see things? How did the Japanese see things, the Vietnamese, you know? So really having that deep understanding of the region, which quite often in my experience as a practitioner, the Europeans, the even to a certain extent, the the um, United States um, colleagues look to Australia to show a bit of leadership, and of course that extends as well to our Pacific um, kind of brethren or, or or family, as the Prime Minister likes to refer to them. So I think that those might sound like you know soft or you know, touchy feely type of of issues, but they're re they're really fundamental and they're really important. Um, so I think that's something that we could what we can bring to the broader um, kind of alliance with the major powers and something that we should be doing a lot more and where societies like Asian society can can kind of help. And that wasn't a gratuitous plug, by the way. It sounded like it, felt like it. But yeah, it well, was. Well, well, it was. well deserved. Okay. <laughs> uh, Nick, Oriana, do you want to weigh in on the middle powers and uh, Australia's objectives slash contributions? If I can, like, you know, do the stand, like, um, America... I don't know if there's like America explaining, kind of like man explaining. There should there there should be, but you know, one thing I have found being in Australia this year is there does seem to be a a, de a degree of like passivity about U.S. policy. I, you know, I remember when the Biden administration first came in, I talked to a lot of Australian government officials, and they were like planning what the reactions would be depending on what the Biden administration was going to suggest you know, in terms of the future of the relationship. And, you know, in my experience working in government, a lot of times, you know, I can just imagine, because I've done this myself, you know, you're sitting at your desk and you're like, okay, I want to strengthen the US-Australian alliance. So let me just like come up with some stuff. Maybe we should do some exercises or maybe we should do this, right? But I'm not wedded to the actual activity. I'm trying to brainstorm ways to get to the objective. And, and what I suggested to some of my Australian government counterparts was maybe instead of waiting for the Biden administration to get around to telling you, you know, how they want to, the, you know, to strengthen the alliance with Australia, you could propose like what you think 
should be done. You know, save them, save them time. I used to, you know, my years working at the Pentagon, I used to always say, like, I loved bureaucratic politics. If someone else wanted to do my job for me, great. You know, the problem is no one ever did. But if someone came to me, like in Australia, and they were like, here's a list of things that we could do to strengthen the relationship, I would be like, oh, great. Like, now I don't have to think of them. So I think there's a sort of uh, there's this realm in which people assume that like when the United States proposes something like we're wedded to that idea versus we're, we're trying to brainstorm ways to get to a certain objective. And especially in the initial stages of an administration, I think is a is a really open time for you know allies and partners to say, OK, this is what I think we should do. Um, you know, what is, and I say, I ask this across the region, whether I'm in Singapore, Australia, Malaysia, whatever, I always ask, if you could determine U.S. strategy in Asia, what would it look like? You know, and I never get an answer. Um, and so, so, you know, this is the time, I think, you know, this is what the United States wants from its allies and partners. Um, you know, please save us from writing yet another Indo-Pacific vision. Um, tell us, you know, no one wants to read that. Um, you know, tell us like what you think. Let's just actually do stuff instead of constantly talking about it. You know, what we should do um, to to cater to, uh, you know, what Australia wants out of this relationship and to improve the relationship going forward. So that's my Amir, Amir explaining. Now I'll turn it over to Australian counterparts. <laughs> uh, Nick, uh, your say, uh, and then we'll uh, take some questions from the audience after you. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll be brief because it'd be good to give. There's lots of questions and there's, there's a big audience. There's so. a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Orion is right that the, the um, I mean, this, the, the whole logic of having an alliance with the, with the world's most powerful countries, it's supposed to buy you influence, supposed to get, get a foot in the metaphorical door of the office of the decision makers of, you know, the people who set the terms of the deal. We should open the door a bit more and we should be a bit more vocal and, and be and work collaboratively with others, you know, with our Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, other Philippine ally, partners and allies to sort of say, hey, these are these things that are in our shared interest that we can that, that we can do together. These are the bits that we can do. So I think that's a really important component. Um, but I think the other thing is to, to, to take an initiative on that, you know, middle, you know, middle power, use that term pretty loosely, but basically they're not great powers. They're not the US, they're not Japan, uh, sorry, not the US, not um, China, but to, to you know, that, there's a big space in between in which there's lots of things on a daily basis that can get done in which there can be you know, multi-middle power coalitions to forge and work out ways of, you know, manage, helping to contribute to manage crises, how to establish, um, you know, you know um, the, the, the sort of working around standards and rules and a whole range of different sort of almost procedural things, but which are, you know, the kind of, you know, the, 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 the lubricant in the works that will make the complex machine of a regional order work. Um, and I think there is a tendency to think, gosh, it's great power rivalry. It's the US and China. They create waves and we just have to figure out how to surf them or not get drowned in them. Um, whereas in fact, there's there's agency across the board. And I think there's been a bit of reticence and it's not just us, it's a bit of, as Zorina was saying, it's a bit of a reticence across the region to 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 um, participate in this. But I think, I don't know, I guess the final thing is just thinking about helping to work with others to find the stuff that the US and China can work together on, but not just the US and China can work together on with all of us about, you know, whether it's climate change, cybercrime, a whole range of things in which there's a lot of shared interest in managing this stuff. And yet um, we tend to focus on the huge, the, 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 the very significant but small number of things where the interests clash and not the very large number of things where there, there are shared interests in which collective action is needed to, to uh, produce better outcomes. But I'll shut up there and then get to the, get to the crowd. All right. So um, the first question that we'll take 
uh, is from uh, Nathan Hang, who I believe um, gets to your, uh, what you were discussing earlier, Guy. Uh, it looks like I can't actually enable people to speak on this one here, which is interesting. So I'll be reading out the questions by the looks of it. So Nathan Hang asks, uh, how does the Japanese government acknowledgement of Taiwan as a key security interest in its latest defence white paper change the current situation, particularly considering the US nominal strategic ambiguity? Uh, that one's for me, is it? Yeah, off you go. Well, yeah, look, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let my academic colleagues kind of answer that <laughs> a bit, in a bit more with a bit more expertise. But, I mean, as I said, having followed kind of Japanese defence updates and white papers for well, at least the last 15 years. I mean, I think the the fact that they've acknowledged it is is incredibly significant. I mean, we've kind of known for quite a while that 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 acknowledgement has been there tacitly, but having having been having drawn that out and having explicitly um, kind of acknowledged that and you know I, I think that's incredibly significant. And I think it kind of demonstrates where Japan is is heading in its in its thinking and its in, in its posture. Nick Ariana, Ariana, I I just add you know I'm not a Japan expert so I won't comment on sort of the Japan politics behind this. But in terms of military balance of power, if Japan were to fight with the United States in a Taiwan contingency, then we would win. We would absolutely win against China. I mean, one of the biggest issues is just. Geography, the United States has one air base within, you know, I think 800 kilometers of Taiwan and China has 39. But if you could aggregate the capabilities and also allow the use of all Japanese bases for offensive purposes, you know, then China doesn't stand a chance. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not a Japan expert. It's my understanding uh, that we are a long way from that. That, yeah, that, sure. that there are still significant. So I hear all these statements and I welcome the statements, but I talk to a lot of my colleagues and they say, you know, even if, even if China attacked a base, a US base in Japan, that still wouldn't constitute, you know, uh, trigger the constitutional, uh, you know, construct of self-defense. And so I like the movement, but it, from my perspective, as, if it doesn't impact operations, it, I can't plan for it. It doesn't have a major impact. Yeah, it's, it's one of these things. It's it's, it's very typical of um, the, 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 if you're a Japan security watcher, as I'm a sort of part-time player and that participant in that club, um, where you get a, a symbolically significant but operationally relatively minor change. That's to say symbol, symbolically and politically significant weakening of the constraints that the very significant constraints Japan has imposed upon it, had originally imposed on it, and then has accepted the imposition itself around its ability to use force. There's a massive thing like, oh, this revolution. And on the left, you tend to get, it's 1935, and you know they're about to invade you know, Manchuria again. And on the right, you go, we're not doing anywhere near enough. Um, the reality is it's a small, significant symbolic step, but the, the, the ability of Japan to play the kind of strategic role that either former Prime Minister Abe has or some of, you know, certainly people in Canberra and in Washington would like it to play because, as Oriana said, the weight that it could bring to bear were it able to do so. Um, it, it gives you a sense of where we may be in 10 or 15 years because we may be at that point in 10 or 15 years where they're able to do these sorts of things. But the, the most recent reinterpretation of the um, constraints on the use of force from a few years ago 
it's still really, really limited in the ways in which the self-defense force can, can you know, use its force in anger um, when it's not just the defense of the islands of Japan from attack on Japanese things. So it's, it's still, we're some way there. It's, a, it's an important step, but it's a step. I might just add to that just very briefly, if I can, Matt. I, I agree absolutely, Nick. And, you know, obviously there's there's a long way to go to convince the Japanese public of taking, you know, those next steps and really, really making those changes to move towards a, a more normal military. I guess just a couple of things is that I that I would add to that is that it, it, anyone who's, you know, a student of Japanese history, the Japanese have an, an amazing ability to, to reinvent themselves and, and turn their direction very quickly. Um, so I don't think that should be discounted. I think also, though, in addition to the the, the kind of the policy incremental moves, as you're you're absolutely right, we, we're also we also are seeing some kind of operational changes as well with the you know decisions to to locate F-35Bs in more strategic southern kind of parts of Japan. So I, I'm not as convinced that it's you know kind of 10, 15 years away. I I, I think that that they're their um, ability to respond could change quicker than that, in particularly if there was a provocative action. Okay, uh, this question that we've got here is from uh, an anonymous attendee. So uh, they strongly disagree with the panelists' predictions of war, and they outline why would China and especially Xi Jinping risk all of their domestic and international objectives in a costly and disastrous military conflict with uncertain consequences over which they wouldn't have control? And also, how would China control 22 million Taiwanese who don't want to be controlled? Uh, invasions can be relatively easy, but occupation can be very difficult and potentially draining. Potentially wanting a few tips in this question. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, uh, what's your thoughts on this? I'll, I'll put this to you first, Ariana. Uh, isn't this... Sure. Where's the benefit in this to Xi Jinping when it's potentially so costly? Yeah, so if... If it were the case that this were to be so costly and there's problems with occupation and there'd be huge um, and it would actually endanger their rejuvenation and their domestic political agenda, absolutely, they wouldn't go for it. But none of that stuff's actually true. So um, I lay this out uh, in more detail in my Foreign Affairs article, but first let's start with occupation. So there's a lot of mirror imaging going on. Uh, in the United States in particular, and I don't know where this anonymous um, caller is from, but, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq didn't go so well. So we think, oh, you know, the Chinese are going to have so much trouble with Taiwan. The, the Chinese have more Uyghurs in internment camps right now than there are young men in Taiwan. China does not have a lot of experience with joint military operations. And so PLA writings will tell you that if they can get themselves, the ships across the strait and on the island. That's the hard part for them. They have extensive experience and in internal repression. And it's, you know, it's, it sounds kind of you know, macabre, but they're very good at it. And so I don't think they're particularly concerned about controlling the Taiwan population. Um, and I, I kind of agree with them. Like who is going to be fighting here, I guess, maybe members of the military, but again, we're talking about what, a couple hundred thousand 
ground troops against millions and millions. And we're not even talking about the military. We're talking about the people's armed police, which are going to be primarily in charge, you know, in which you have an estimated two million people's armed police. China spends more on its internal uh, security budget than they do on their military budget. So this is not their primary concern. And I think they're right to not be concerned about that. In terms of the economic costs, like if it were the case that if Xi Jinping used force against Taiwan, countries would, you know, cut off diplomatic ties, cut off all trade with China. They'd be diplomatically isolated and their economy would tank. China, Xi Jinping wouldn't do it. But his foreign policy strategy, his and his predecessors for the past 25 years has been predicated on building an international environment to convince countries not to respond in that way if they use force against Taiwan, to convince countries that Taiwan is a unique situation for Beijing, and, and they even have provisions in their strategic partnerships with the majority of US allies and partners that basically say that. So I think his assumption is you know, maybe there's economic sanctions for three to five years. There's a lot of finger wagging, some strong words, um, but for the most part, countries are gonna wanna stay out. Uh, and, and my experience, just even in Australia, hearing people talk about this issue is, Australians are leaning that way, right? If you could have your way, it would be not to fight a major war with China. So I think their viewpoint that they could probably do this at an acceptable cost uh, is right. And that's what the United States is trying to, to, to change. We're, you know, I think by engaging more with partners and allies, by getting the Japanese to make these kinds of statements, we're trying to signal to Xi Jinping that that calculus that you could take Taiwan and the next day everything's going to be exactly the same as it was before is incorrect. I don't think we've done enough to convince him of that yet. Mm. And that's why I think it, we wouldn't deter um, Xi Jinping right now. But if that were the case, then absolutely. I agree with the, the questioner. Uh, Xi Jinping wouldn't risk it. But if right now it seems like low cost, high likelihood of victory, and you get to beat the United States and you get Taiwan. It seems like a lot of benefits and very little downside. Yeah, it might take more than a bit of tutting. Uh, I can add one little footnote, Matt. I mean, yeah, I mean, foot, I think just footnote away. One thing which is just you cannot, cannot overstate the importance, the symbolic and political importance of Taiwan to the CCP and its sort of internal narrative. So it is. this is not just a, a strategic island that gives them a gateway to, you know, the Western Pacific and it's all about, you know, spheres of influence. This is a Division One Grade A kind of emotional nationalist issue. And the second is... Look at Russia's um, interventions in Crimea and Georgia and the very successful international condemnation that got Russia to scurry back behind its borders. And that's the Russian economy, which is about the same, same size as the Australian economy. Um, yes, they've got nuclear weapons. It's not the world's second biggest economy that is intertwined with the global economy. That's the most important engine for growth in the global economy and which is the number one trading partner of 140 members of the UN corralling an anti-China coalition to say get off Taiwan will be really difficult. Hmm. Um, there's a, a question here from Thomas Mansfield who uh, quotes Hugh White's 2019 book uh, that ultimately the United States would be, uh, won't be willing to commit the resources required to defeat China in a struggle militarily or otherwise. And he also argues that America hasn't fully appreciated how serious an adversary China could be uh, so do you think Hugh White is right? Nick, you've um, uh, interacted extensively with Hugh. Do you want to 
start us off. You white right. There's an international relations T-shirt on that. Um, <laughs> I have I, a tote bag. Iran <laughs> um, is in better position to to say what you know the perceptions of the American military, the Chinese military. I mean, she knows that a great deal better than I do. Hmm. Um, the political question is an interesting one, but I think I answered it earlier, which I you know I think it's it, it's the it is the case that the US is very wary about using force it has been since the Obama administration. Um, and you, you know, you look at the Biden administration and think, you know, it's cut from a similar sort of cloth, the heyday of humanitarian intervention of the 1990s and, and a kind of, you know, we can do anything that the Cheney, um, vice president Cheney's view that we can write, you know, we can create our own reality. That's gone. You know, that's not there, but Taiwan's, you know, it's a big deal. Um, both strategically speaking, but in terms of reputation and credibility and influence in the Western Pacific. So that I think the calculus is one where, you know, it's pretty significant, you know, that were the Chinese to do this. Um, I think, I, I, I mean, you, you, you could imagine a scenario in which there's a consideration by the Biden administration or whatever come next, that it's a fait accompli and we can live with uh, a Taiwan that's under the CCP. But that's that's a difficult scenario to imagine. The other ones where the US responds as it has planned to do for decades, I think is much more plausible. But you know, the, the, it, it, you're right to sort of go the appetite, for, you know, the, the appetite for conflict is is less than it's been in the past. But um, an America that that gives up on Taiwan without a fight, that, that's a different world we're living in. Yeah, I would just sort of weigh in and say that conflict is very easy to avoid, right? You just give the other side everything they want. Um, and I think the United States for a very long time engaged in a lot of wishful thinking that through accommodation of China, you know, we could, we could have a world that we could accept and avoid conflict with China. I don't think anyone believe like, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, no one believes that in the United States anymore. Um, and so, I don't know what year that Hugh White quote is from, you know, maybe 2011, probably right. 2021, not anymore. I mean, I really think things have shifted in the United States. And I think it's telling people I say, I, I do a lot of congressional briefings and they always ask you, how do you get the American people, you know, behind a conflict, regardless of the conflict, over 70% approval rating in the beginning of every war the United States fights. Then the approval rating changes depending on how that war goes. I don't think at least the military is underestimating, you know, the, the potential costs of this conflict, uh, especially in comparison. And this is what the main concern is about will and resolve in comparison to Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, we're talking about, you know, more casualties in the first couple of days than, than decades of those wars. Um, and so there's, you know, this is a very serious consideration for any leader to send, you know, Americans into that situation. Um, but I wouldn't take it. The United States has not done anything, you know, to count very risky to counter Chinese aggression to date. But and this is not based on anything scientific. It's just sort of my 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 American feeling just because the United States hasn't done anything, it doesn't predict it won't do, do something in the future. I think actually the likelihood of a strong response gets higher and higher. Like the way the United States does things is it does nothing and then it, it over, overly responds, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's how America does business. So if anything, I think what we'll see is basically, 
you get to a point, and I think we're at that point where the United States is pretty sick of China pushing us around. And now you have a lot of people being like, okay, that's it. That's it. So sure, maybe China does the same exact thing tomorrow that they did two years ago, but it's just, it's the final straw and we're sick of it. And the United States is willing to take huge military risks to get China to stop pushing our buttons. Like, I, I think that's where the United States is right now. Um, and that's why for the first time, you know, I don't think the dynamics of war have changed so much. You know, we, do, we haven't talked about Korea because it's no longer a big issue, but a couple of years ago, the Korean war was gonna start because America was gonna start it. That was never a path to conflict before President Trump came into office, right? It was North Korea was either going to collapse or invade South Korea. Not that the United States was going to attack North Korea, you know, out of nowhere. So these things change so quickly. Now we don't worry about Korea anymore. Now it's about Taiwan. And the United States is taking, is willing to take great risks. I think actually too risky, you know, in terms of provoking a conflict when it comes to changing some of our Taiwan policies. Um, but I don't, you're not going to avoid conflict these days because the United States is going to give in on the Chinese aggression. That's, that's not the way that this conflict is going to be avoided. Mm-hmm. So should Australia, middle power countries, et cetera, be more proactive in trying to help avoid the conflict or get, or get in between and wade into this problem, these issues more than we have been? Um, I mean, e.g. the quad seems to be, a good step in that direction for building up those sort of uh, conversations and activities. Um, Guy, did you want to weigh in first? You seem to be involved in the practical side of things a bit. Yeah, yeah. Look, I I think, you know, I think the short answer to that is yes. I mean, whether it's to, you know, avoid a conflict, well, I'm not quite sure whether it's that, but I think there's certainly a lot of, um, you know, um, soft diplomatic, kind of hard diplomatic capacity building type of efforts through multilateral organisations and, and structures that we can and we do play quite a quite a you know significant role for our size. But I think we can do a lot better. Um, and I think part of the problem, which has kind of been touched on a few times in the, in during the last twenty odd minutes, is that for you know almost twenty years or 15, 20 years. A lot of Canberra's focus, particularly in the defence space, was really Iraq and then Afghanistan. So we we really, in my view, we've really taken our ball, our eye off the ball in 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 our, the region to our north, which is should be our kind of homeland and our bread and butter. So I think that we can certainly do a lot more to reinvigorate our engagement in the region. I think we can work through um, and support initiatives like the Quad. Um, you know, supporting our allies. I think I agree with Nick and Oriana. I, I just can't see. Um, or, you know, it would be a radical move for the US to kind of pack up and leave the region or, or abandon allies in the region in the event of a major conflict. Um, so, yeah, I think there are quite a lot of things that we can do. And I think it's it's a whole range of things from the soft diplomatic edge right through to, you know, increasing, increasing military cooperation and, and trust and relationship. Because as anybody who knows the region to our north, as we should know better, it's all about relationships and networks and personal um interactions that make a significant difference uh we are running short of time but uh any uh final words nick and oriana on on that theme at all i think i mean it all depends on what you want to do to avoid conflict because there's there's like the there's one path which is one which says the way to avoid conflict is to to make raise the cost of conflict to china to a point where it's unacceptable so i think that you know the point that was being made earlier was essentially, you know, that if the if the PRC thinks the costs of doing this are low, the, the probabilities of success are high. 
then the way to manage that, certainly on the Taiwan issue, is you're not going to you're not going to be able to negotiate your way around Taiwan. Is you have to make the the, the cost benefit perception different. Now here in Australia, how do you contribute to that? And that may be help getting us to pay an even higher price in terms of our relationship with Beijing and putting ourselves in harm's way, in which we I'm not sure there's public appetite for. But that's that's one part. And the other is the sort of thing that that Guy's talking about, which is establishing a more sort of a, a, a regional environment um, in, in which a basically accommodation of the PRC can be more, better managed or a pan-regional coalition to, to manage that cost raising, but in a diplomatic way might increase. But I think there's, there's lots of different uh, contributions you can make, but it's going to depend on what you think you need to do to avoid conflict. Ariana. I'll just add, you know, I think the dynamics of the U.S.-Australia uh, alliance are just so interesting, you know, because it seems like the United States is maybe very forward-leaning on some of these issues, maybe too forward-leaning for the appetite of the Australian public. But this is, like, very confusing to me because, you know, the United States is going to be fine, right? Like, our economy, like, we have a huge domestic market. We're self-sufficient to a great degree for natural resources, you know, China doesn't have the capabilities to hit the United States conventionally. So like the United States is relatively protected. It's countries like Australia and the region that are going to have to live with a powerful undeterred China that, you know, is going to be insisting on foreign dictation of their policies. So I, I would just sort of end with saying that the China we're dealing with today is one that is deterred because of the presence of the US military. If you look at the Chinese writings, their statements, they absolutely consider what the United States is going to do before they take any action against the United States or its allies and partners. And so when we think about avoiding conflict, when we think about accommodation, you know, what does that world look like if China is no longer deterred? And is that, you know, is that a world that Australia feels safe in? Um, and, you know, what would be necessary to avoid that world and what, what are the costs that Australians are willing to bear to, to have, you know, freedom of choice in their own strategic space and, and maneuverability in the international system. So I hope whether it's the Australian side or the American side, we think of more ways, you know, to strengthen the alliance, bring, bring ourselves together, keep America um, engaged and involved in the region. Uh, and um, I'm, you know, hopefully played a very small small role by not alienating too many people in this webinar. So thank you, Matt, for having me. All right. Uh, we might wrap it up there. Uh, thanks, everyone, for your uh, brilliant questions, which uh, made my job quite a lot easier, which I unfortunately didn't get to. Um, but I know that, uh, well, Nick and Oriana are on social media if you want to at them over Twitter and see if you can engage in a thoughtful, meaningful debate. Um, I wish Twitter is so well known. <laughs> I, I did halfway through that statement remember what platform I was talking about. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, uh, the next La Trobe Asia event that uh, might take your interest is, uh, I believe, next uh, Tuesday night, uh, which is a, a webinar with former Prime Ministers Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull, which is on at uh, 5 pm. You can find more details about that on the La Trobe Asia website. And uh, we have an India webinar uh, series as well, which is uh, just starting to be put online and take enrolment. So there's plenty to check out. And uh, to all of you, I would like to thank you very much for coming. And uh, if you could please uh, virtually thank our panelists, uh, Ariana Skyler-Mastro, best of luck up there in, in Sydney and fleeing the country uh, when you are able to. 
Guy Birkenstein, uh, hello to Northern Territory, and I uh, hope to see you guys one day as well. And Nick, despite the fact that you're a few suburbs over, I haven't seen you in ages either, actually. So thanks greetings, very much. Greetings from the Democratic People's Republic of North Fitzroy. <laughs> comrades are strong. <laughs> so thanks very much for everyone for coming, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed the webinar. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for, thanks for taking part.